Okay, so reading again is from Mark 11, uh, verses uh, 11 to 25. So Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their hearts, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you in your sins. All right. Welcome, everyone. Um, so just feel like I need to recap a little bit because our last few weeks have been a bit muddled with the order of things. So I'm just going to kind of catch up with where we came from to make this one make a bit more sense for us. So chronologically, these verses that John read for us, they come after what Sarah preached on it's nearly a month ago, um, Jesus riding in on the donkey, you know, it was that sort of quite hopeful moment, people are calling Hosanna, recognising the Messiah has come, the one that they've been waiting for after 400 years of silence. So today's reading comes just after that. It said that, you know, Jesus arrived into Jerusalem, that triumphal entry, and then when he arrived it was getting late, so he went to Bethany where he was staying, which is about four or five k's away. So that's where we pick off today. And at first glance, you know, those passages that we heard this morning, they feel a little bit disconnected. We've got a, a weird story about a fig tree, then we're off of the temple, driving out the merchants there, and then we read more about the fig tree again. It kind of seems like the only thing in common is that Jesus is having a bad day. And when I first read these passages that I was meant to be speaking on, I kind of thought, I'm going to have to pick one or the other to focus on, either the fig tree or the temple. It's, you know, I don't really want to write two sermons and, and drag it out for you guys. I'll probably drag it out anyway, sorry. Um, 
But as I dug into it a little bit more and looked at what some of the commentaries and what other people had to say about it, um, I was quite surprised that most people discover that Mark, they think Mark, Mark is intentionally combining these stories. Um, earlier in this series, we mentioned that you know, in the book of Mark, it's, it's quite fast-paced. It doesn't waste any time. You know, he kind of says, we went here, then we did this, then Jesus did that. It's, it's really like next, next, next. You know, almost sounds like the way kids write stories. That there's, you know, there's no nice segues. It's just bang, 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 one after the other. So you can often miss some of the clever things he's doing with his writing. So yeah, many theologians and literary experts notice that he does something in interesting and intentional, and they got a name for it. They actually call it the Markin sandwich because he does it a few times. And it, it's when he tells a story and then he embeds another story inside it. It sort of feels like he's starting to tell you something, then he goes off track, seems a bit unrelated, then he comes back to the main point again. So, if we approach these readings with that in mind, that it's written this way intentionally, it actually helps to make this event with the fig tree make a little bit more sense. So with that in mind, let's continue where we left off. So Jesus has just arrived in Jerusalem yesterday, that you know, triumphal entry, everything's looking really promising, everyone's shouting and recognizing him as the king that they've been waiting for. And then cut to today. Jesus and his disciples, they leave Bethany where they spent the night. And they're on their way to Jerusalem again, and he's hungry. And in the distance he sees a fig tree, and he sees all these green leaves. And he goes to see if he can find anything to eat. In verse 13 it says, When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. You know, it really, it sounds like he got up on the wrong side of the bed, right? Like, he's, he's asking quite a lot. It specifically says it's not the season for figs. So what was he expecting? If you're like me, you probably don't know too much about figs or fig trees. Um, and I know a lot more now, but before this, all I knew was, you know, our neighbours have a fig tree it's really annoying, it drops all the fruit on our lawn and it smells bad and they don't even taste that good, the birds get them before we do. Probably, I think I'm probably a bit spoiled, you know, the Bible talks a lot about figs as being this you know, amazing delicacy, this sweet thing and they're just a bit bland and boring, I'll probably get half of you outraged at that comment, but that's alright. Not really a fan of fig trees, but I've learned a bit more this week. Now, it turns out they're a bit unusual for a fruit tree and that they can produce up to three crops in a single year. And that's more common in warmer climates, it's not really what we see here in New Zealand. But the first crop is produced on the old wood, and then the second or third crops are produced on the new growth. And what happens is firstly, so that they drop their leaves each time, and the first thing that happens is these small green buds appear at the end of the branches, and they call these the, I'm gonna pronounce it wrong, pigim or pigim, and these are what they call the early figs. And this, this fruit's not as juicy or rich as the later fruit. It's, it's kind of like a half fig. It's not, not really a proper one. They just look like mini figs, and they don't get much better than that. But after these appear, then the fruit tree will begin to grow its leaves and its new growth. And the fig tree, again, is unique in that it can be in full fruit, full leaf, and have flowers all at the same time. So in Israel, the first crop becomes ripe in June, and then the second is in September, and sometimes, if you're lucky, there's a third one in, in December as well. So although it mentions it's not the season for figs, it does say that there were leaves on the tree. And if there's leaves, then it's safe to assume there should be those little pegame things too, those you know, almost figs, the half figs. And these are edible. But 
it's the second batch of fruit that you tend to actually wait for. They're the ones that are that they're bigger, juicier, sweeter. So if you wait longer, you tend to get better fruit. But these early ones, they were a sign of the better fruit that would follow. If there's leaves, which there was, then there should be those little tiny edible fruit. So if you didn't know that about fig trees, that's something new for you. And if we look a bit about what the Bible says about fig trees, it, it says quite a lot. Um, figs are mentioned over 60 times in the Bible. Firstly, starting in the book of Genesis, where Adam and Eve used fig leaves to make their clothes. You know, figs were a vital part of the Middle Eastern diet. It was a sign of you know, peace and prosperity to be able to relax under your own fruit tree, you know, lie in the shade of your own tree. That meant life was good. Fig trees, grapevines, olive trees, they were all really valued. They were intergenerational assets. In the book of Deuteronomy, you know, where God's leading them into the promised land and, and they're taking over and attacking the, the cities there, they're specifically commanded not to destroy any of the fruit trees when attacking a city. They could eat the fruit, but they were told not to cut them down. Most importantly, the fig tree was used as a symbol of the nation of Israel. You know, all the Old Testament prophets, they repeat the same language using the imagery of a fig tree or a grapevine. Fig tree or grapevine to represent Israel. This is mentioned, this similar wording by Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Joel, Micah. They all use the same kind of language. And they use the, the picture of, you know, good figs or ripe figs. That was a picture of, of obedient believers, while rotten figs were a picture of wicked men. And just going to share a few of these examples just to paint a picture so we can become a bit familiar with the language and imagery that these people would have grown up with. This, this is, you know, this is the, the bulk of their Sunday services. They would have been hearing this over and over again throughout their lives. This, this wasn't new, the, the stuff that Jesus is talking to them. Jeremiah says that I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. Hosea. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its, in its first season, I saw your fathers. For a nation that has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number, its teeth are lion's teeth. It has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vineyard and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Well, Micah, he says, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered. As when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat. No first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. You know, these, these types of messages were really common in the words of the prophets, usually lamenting at the state of their people. You know, they should be like productive fruit trees, bearing the fruit of righteousness, but looking around, all they saw were thorns and briars. You know, so, so that's sort of a brief example. There's, there's many more, but that's an, an idea of what the Old Testament has to say about fig trees and vineyards. It was commonly used as a symbol for God's people and for the nation of Israel. And it could be used to paint a good picture or a bad picture. And as we read, it was usually a lament of how things should be. So with that in mind, we know a bit more about fig trees. We know a bit more about the language and what these people understood about the fig tree stories, that it meant more than just a tree. So with that in mind, Jesus saw a fig tree covered in leaves. And although it wasn't the season to see the fullness of ripe fruit, 
He should have been able to see those tiny little buds, those edible fruit that are also a visible sign of more fruit that would follow. And he didn't see any of this fruit. And he says, may no one ever eat from your fruit again. So we're going to just hold that in our minds for the moment. That's the first part of the story, the, you know, the first slice of bread in our sandwich. And we're going to fast forward to the last part and get the other slice of bread before we look at the middle. So we see that the next day they pass by that same fig tree again. And it says in verse 20, They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And this is the only destructive miracle that's recorded in the Gospels. And it's a little bit uncomfortable, isn't it? Like We're quite happy to read of you know, restoring sight and healings and driving out demons, raising the dead, you know, all, that, all that good stuff. But this one just doesn't quite sit right, does it? The disciples were amazed to see this, and Jesus takes this opportunity to teach them about faith and prayer. And I'm, I'm not actually going to focus on that one today, even though it sent me down lots of rabbit holes. Um, there's a lot of similarities there to what we covered in the Lord's Prayer series. So th- th- there's the last part of the bread. You know, Jesus has said, may no one eat of this fig tree, fruit from your tree again, and then they find it's cursed and withered away. Now we're going to zoom in at the, at the middle of the sandwich, the meat. This is the, you know, the story that's awkwardly jammed in the middle there. If we read from verse 15, it says, On reaching Jerusalem... Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. So it sounds like people were using the temple courts as kind of like a shortcut to get through the city. Um, you know, it's, it's a much longer walk to walk around the big temple complex than it is to go through it. So people were carrying merchandise through those courts. It's like carrying your groceries on the way home. You've found this great shortcut. But people weren't actually there to pray or offer sacrifices. It was just a convenient way to get home faster. And merchants selling animals for sacrifices, there wasn't actually anything wrong with that. They were providing a much-needed service. Same with converting the currency as well. So why did Jesus drive them out of the temple? It's likely because of how and where they performed these services. On a week like Passover, there would have been a massive influx of people needing to purchase animals, and it would have taken up much more space than the usual, spilling over into the outmost court of the temple complex. This was the court of the Gentiles. We've got reports from a first century historian called Josephus who was in the area, and he mentioned that at one Passover, there was about 255,000 lambs that are killed at a single year. You know, this is a massive event. It's a massive influx of people. And that's just the lambs, not, not talking about the doves or the, the cheaper things that you could sacrifice. So if someone couldn't afford a lamb, then they could purchase a dove instead. Um, in, Levit- in Leviticus, it outlines a hierarchy of animals. You know, if you can't afford this, you can. it was concessions for the poor to, to enable everyone to participate. And in this passage, it, it specifically mentions that Jesus was targeting the merchants selling the doves. He, he doesn't mention the lambs. In other words, Jesus was most frustrated with the merchants who were selling sacrificial animals to the poor. It was a process that could easily be exploited. You know, there's reports of um, people selling animals at a way higher price this time of year during the festival times. Um, even stories of you know, people bringing their own lamb, which you were allowed to do, but it would be inspected by the temple priests and say, oh, 
you know, doesn't meet the standard, it's not without blemish, but we can say you're one of our animals instead. And then they'd do a pretty clever little, you know, you've taken your lamb all this way, I'll do a good trade and offer for you. So, you know, a bit of a discount. And then they would sell that guy's lamb to the next person saying it's perfectly fine. Great, great business model, but a little bit terrible. The priests in the temple complex that they only accepted a specific currency. It was a, a weird half shekel temple coin, so it's not something that was actually used in rotation for anything else in the country. And you had people coming to visit from all over the place using different currencies. And these money changers offered currency conversion, but it seems that they are charging extremely high rates to do this. Again, it's a necessary service, but it opens up ways to easily exploit people and it essentially allowed the robbery of foreigners. So selling animal sacrifices at high prices and currency conversion with high rates primarily affected those who had come to worship from other nations. And specifically that, that outer court where they were doing this, this was the only part of the temple where the Gentiles were allowed to go. If this area had been taken over by merchants, then there was no room for the, in the temple for the temple to serve its intended purpose. You know, this, this temple was meant to be a house of prayer for all the nations. Instead, they arrived to this noisy, dirty marketplace that was just exploiting them, where the noise of animals and merchants drowned out any sounds of prayer. In verse 17, Jesus was teaching them and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? but you have made it a den of robbers. A house of prayer, that, that line comes, a house of prayer for all the nations comes from Isaiah. And he's, he's talking there about foreigners, any foreigners that bind themselves to the Lord to be his servants, those who love the name of the Lord, to those people. He says, I will bring them to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And he also says of Israel that I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So, you know, the purpose of Israel was to be a light, to draw people, draw the rest of the world to God, to provide a place where people could worship and pray. And instead we see that they've become a barrier, preventing people from knowing God, especially the poor and the foreigners. So when Jesus says you've made, made it a den of robbers, he's echoing this language from the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 7. And you know, it's another familiar word of warning to the nation of Israel. Where he says, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Now, that's a pretty brutal warning from the prophet Jeremiah there. And not long after this warning from Jeremiah, Jerusalem was attacked by the Babylonians and the temple was destroyed. So, so Jesus, echoing those warnings from Jeremiah, stealing that same language that you know, their, their ears would have recognized from the prophet Jeremiah, he's not at all being subtle, is he? From here on, we really see things shift up a gear with the religious leaders. 
So after clearing out the temple, Jesus spent the day there teaching. And it says that the chief priests and scribes were not happy about it. They started seeking a way to destroy him. You know, they knew exactly what he was saying. But rather than repent, they doubled down on their unrighteousness. And it says that the crowds were astonished at his teaching. I'm not surprised they were astonished. Um, can, can you sort of picture it? This guy Jesus has just turned up. He's, he's not one of the priests. He's not in charge of organizing what happens on the temple grounds. He doesn't even live in Jerusalem. So this guy just arrived yesterday, and a big crowd is chanting, Hosanna, here comes the, the king we've been waiting for. And he's kicking everyone out of the temple, and he's calling the guys in charge a bunch of robbers. That's no wonder you're astonished. And we're going to see over the next few weeks this dialogue with the religious leaders, it, it again keeps ramping up. And we start seeing kind of what looks like a different Jesus. Um, it's really interesting to see how he interacts with different people. It's like seeing two different versions of him. Yeah, but he's actually quite consistent with, with when and how he, he does this. You know, to those who know that they're sinners, to the humble, to the sick, to the oppressed, we see you know, Jesus as this gentle, gracious shepherd calling people back in repentance to him. But to those who are exploiting the poor, to the religious leaders who are keeping people from God, you know, Jesus is this really strong, intimidating guy, and he doesn't back down from a fight. And he's not worried about calling people out in public. You know, he, he's still offering them repentance, but the tone is quite different. He, he, he's saying, you're on thin ice. It's, it's very direct warning. There's nothing gentle about it. So now that we've seen a bit more of this middle story, the meat in our sandwich, the outer story of the fig tree starts becoming a little bit clearer to us. You know, we've got this story about a fig tree, something that's commonly, commonly used as a symbol for God's people, specifically the nation of Israel. And we have a story about Jesus visiting people, specifically the temple and the religious leaders. So if we look at the two side by side, we see you know, Jesus is approaching a fig tree, and he's hungry. And then we've seen the triumphal entry, Jesus coming to his people and to his temple. And as Jesus is walking towards the tree, he sees the leaves. This gives the assumption that there'll be something there to eat. And at the temple, on his way into Jerusalem, the crowds are shouting, Hosanna. You know, things are looking promising. They're recognizing him as the Messiah. That's a big deal. And he arrives to see that the tree had no fruit. It just had the appearance of fruit. You know, it looked promising. It looked green. It looked good. So many leaves. But it had no substance. And again, he arrives at the temple and too finds that this is just this noisy, exploitative, chaotic mess. It's not the house of prayer for all the nations like it should be. The temple, too, is fruitless. It's, it's a pretense of worship. The whole religious system is spiritually bankrupt, and there was no righteousness to be found there. Yeah, just like the prophet Micah said, the best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The purpose of the nation of Israel was to be a light to the nations. You know, the temple was meant to be this key place of prayer and worship for everyone. And Jesus doesn't, at the same time, Jesus doesn't see any sign of fruit on the tree and no fruit in the nation of Israel. Jesus curses the tree. And later we see that the tree is withered and dried up at the root and no one would eat from it again. And this was prophetic of what was to come. The nation Israel would be cut off once again. The temple would be destroyed years later in 70 AD and it would no longer be God's house where all the nations would go for prayer and worship. 
you know, this cursing of the fig tree, it's, it's an object lesson of the story that we've heard so many times from Jesus and the other prophets. For hundreds of years, Israel had ignored the words of the prophets. Now Jesus is showing a visible, miraculous sign of that same prophetic warning. He wasn't actually saying anything new to them here. And Jesus keeps repeating the language of fig trees and vineyards again many times before and after this. They knew from their history that ignoring those previous warnings from other prophets didn't end well. We're reminded of what Isaiah says, What more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. Or as we heard from Raywin a few weeks back, you know, she was talking on the parable of the tenants. Um, to briefly summarize, you know, the, a man planted a vineyard, got it all set up nicely, and then he rented that vineyard out, got others to look after it. Then at harvest time, he sent his servant to go and collect some of the fruit as he was owed. But they seized him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed, and lots of repeats of that. And he says, what will the owner of that vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And that parable of the tenants that Raywin shared for us, that's actually, you know, we've muddled our order a bit, so that's actually chapter 12, which comes directly after this, what we're talking about today. So you can see it's another ramp up in these discussions with the religious leaders. And, and in that chapter 12, after sharing the parable, it says that, that the Pharisees and scribes understood that they were the ones that the vineyard owner was going to kill and replace. They, they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. You know, for us, we're a little bit removed from these stories. They just seem like you know, little nuggets of wisdom, or you know, a good, good lesson there for us. You know, give the vineyard owner some fruit, don't, don't be an egg. But you know, they're actually a lot more intentionally pointed than that. It wouldn't surprise me if Jesus is telling these stories and you know, having a terrifying death stare at these leaders at the same time. You know, he's, he's basically saying, your number's up. Again, in the book of Luke, we hear of another parable that Jesus shares. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming back to look for fruit on this fig tree, and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. You know, again, it's that same language. Fig, fig trees, vineyards, they all paint the same picture of judgment, just like the prophets in the Old Testament. So this weird event of Jesus cursing a fig tree, it's, it's an object lesson of a story that they had heard so many times, not just from Jesus, but the prophets. It's a miraculous sign that serves both as a warning and unfortunately was also prophetic of what followed. You know, when Jesus walked up to that fig tree and he saw leaves but no fruit, that, that was already a problem. The fruit comes before the leaves on that tree. You know, it had the appearance of looking good. It was safe to assume that there was going to be something there to eat. But it was false hope. It was, it was all appearances and nothing of substance. God expects to see fruit from his people. You know, although this is primarily a prophetic picture of the nation of Israel and their rejection of God, I don't think we're exempt from the same warning. You know, unfortunately, we often see the church repeating the same mistakes and ignoring these same warnings. 
when we look at the people that Jesus spoke most harshly to, it was always the religious leaders and the people in charge. Those who looked good in the eyes of the people. Those who prayed loudly, those who recited scripture, who knew, knew their religion inside and out. But they lacked the fruit that God was looking for. They were leaves and no fruit. And just like in all the parables, the vineyard owner doesn't put up with trees that bear no fruit. Yeah, and that's it's a bit of a scary thought, isn't it? Well, it should be a scary thought. You know, I feel a bit uncomfortable saying it or mentioning it as a sermon. It's not, it's not my cup of tea, but I think it, it needs to be done. Um, it, you know, it's been repeated so many times in these parables, and there's so much focus on it that you know it's obvious God is expecting the fruit of righteousness in us. It's not an optional request, is it? Yeah, we, we haven't read of any parables of you know a vineyard owner who planted his fig trees and was really stoked to find them with thorns and bare branches. You know, he, he doesn't say that tree's good for other things, you know, use the thorns to keep the animals out or the leaves just look really cool, I'm going to keep it around, flowers smell nice or whatever. You know, those parables don't exist. But as you see, we've got so many examples of this urgency and this expectation to bear fruit. In one of those parables, the tree that did not bear fruit was given one more year, then it would be pulled out. The nation of Israel multiple times faced judgment for failing to live up to what God called them to be. And we don't know when our time will be up, but we know it will happen, and that it will happen sooner than we want it to. So don't wait for tomorrow to repent and turn to God and start moving towards a life of righteousness. And that all sounds very intense. And it is intense. <laughs> but luckily... Jesus tells us the solution to ensuring that we bear fruit. It's, it's actually easier than we might think. He tells us that I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them in the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. But this, my Father, is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so that you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. I had this little picture the other night as I was preparing, and that's not very common for me. I don't tend to have that kind of thing happen. Um, and I think it's revealing something that was important to me and probably for others too. I had this sort of picture of, I can't really describe it other than tree, roots of a tree that just didn't look good enough. Like you just had the feeling it's not going to work. It's not going to be reliable. And it was revealing this very dumb mindset that I've had that I thought, you know, if I can just focus on you know, growing my faith, putting in lots of time and effort to get some decent roots. And, and I mean that in a good way, you know, all the good stuff of spending time in the Word, praying, learning, all, all that good stuff. But I was viewing that as something that I can just kind of put a, a block of time into and that would be me set. You know, I'm, I'm finished, I've got good roots, now I'm done. And I think I had this attitude of, you know, putting a focus on my spiritual life early so that I could almost spiritually retire in the some sense. You know. I've got these roots that I've previously put down. 
I'm set. We say it out loud, it sounds, it sounds pretty dumb, right? But hey, <laughs> that's me. Yeah. But we're not meant to be growing roots, are we? This, this picture that Jesus gives us says that I'm not actually meant to be preparing to sustain myself spiritually. That's not my job. It says that Jesus is the vine. He is the roots. I'm just a branch. I just need to stay connected, which is great because that's a lot easier than you know doing it on your own and trying to grow your own roots and survive by yourself. But it does require an attitude change. Um, you know, this isn't something that we're ever going to graduate from. You know, we're never going to reach a point where we're able to do it on our own. When we stop being a branch and stop being connected to the vine, that we don't work. Jesus is quite clear that that's not how it's going to work. Again, it's very arrogant to assume that any fruit is the result of my efforts. He says that he who abides in me bears much fruit. Without me, you can do nothing. So I've, I've seen that in myself. Maybe you guys can relate. You know, there are times where we're well connected with God and our spiritual life is great. But that great period from last year or five years ago doesn't, doesn't do much for me today, does it? it doesn't, you can't carry it over. Um, I kind of, again, I feel like a very slow learner here that there's some repeated lessons from a sermon I did a while ago on the Lord's Prayer and kind of that importance of daily bread and you know, just getting through another day. Definitely a slow learner, just like Israel. You know, that this idea of abiding is just the same as the daily bread. It's, it's a constant need to remain in God. You know, we can't store up that bread. So hopefully that's some encouragement to you guys out there. If you feel uncomfortable or convicted about any of that, then I pray that that would draw you towards God and not away from him. I pray that you would turn to God and bring him your thorns and your bare branches. You know, God, even though that's not what God is looking for, he does rejoice when we turn from us and, and we come to him. Yeah, so if you're hearing this, you know your ears are working, you're still breathing, then it's actually not too late to turn to God and ask him to help you to bear fruit. As we move into a time of communion, we just, you know, we remember that Jesus, when he died for us, he died when we had no fruit to give either. He loved us as barren branches and thorn bushes, and yet he urges us to join him and let him transform us.